Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The producers behind the film Killers of the Flower Moon say they wanted to portray the Osage people and the terrible historical tragedy that befell them with respect and reverence. At the same time, the movie is a graphically violent depiction of what the Osage call the Reign of Terror. Today we'll hear from several Osage voices for more context to the much-anticipated film and the events from a century ago that it's based on. That's right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. It was an emotional day at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage, where the U.S. Interior Secretary spent Sunday listening to Native boarding school survivors. KNBA's Rhonda McBride has more. And a trigger warning for our audience, this story contains testimony of child sexual abuse. Uh, Interior Secretary Deb Holland told the gathering her name in Karis is Crushed Turquoise. She says her family's knowledge of their language fractured after a priest took her grandmother away at the age of eight on a train to a Catholic boarding school. There, she was punished for speaking Karis and quit using it, so it wasn't passed on. Today, Holland says she understands some of the language but can't speak it. This is the first time in history that a United States cabinet secretary comes to the table with the same trauma that all of you have. Many of these children were as young as five years old. Jim LaBelle was the first to share his story. He was only eight years old when the government took him away from his mother, along with his younger brother, Kermit. When LaBelle was sent to the Wrangell Institute in 1955, he was bilingual. I quickly shut down my my Inupiaq side because I saw so many of my fellow students beaten in so many different ways. There was the gauntlet in which a naked child would be forced to run past a row of kids who lined up to strike them with their belts and if they didn't hit hard enough they would be punished too. A lot of times that drew blood. But LaBelle says that wasn't the worst of it. Matrons were sodomizing boys in their beds or in the bathrooms. We saw girls going home in the middle of the school year uh, pregnant. LaBelle says the kids knew what was going on but never told anyone. Dark secrets which took a huge emotional toll. A lot of trauma is is carried on from one generation to the next. Martha Sanungatuck says all Alaska natives are in some way touched by boarding school abuse. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. A Canadian judge has approved a landmark $23 billion First Nations Child Welfare Compensation Agreement. Dan Karpinchuk reports. The compensation, $23 billion, is the largest in Canadian history. It comes after a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling in 2019. It ordered the Canadian government to pay the maximum human rights penalty for discrimination. That will work out to about $40,000 for each affected First Nations child and family member. Initially, Ottawa had fought the order, but negotiated a deal after it faced two class-action lawsuits. Cindy Blackstock is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. It's a relief 
But it, I also find myself thinking about the thousands of children, youth, and families who are hurt by Canada's discrimination, who will never get their childhoods back. And that's why it's so important that we end the discrimination and prevent it from happening again. About 300,000 First Nations children and their families will be entitled to the compensation. The settlement comes more than 15 years after the Assembly of First Nations and the Child and Family Caring Society launched a human rights complaint. It's centered on allegations that Ottawa's underfunding of on-reserve child welfare services amounted to discrimination and that First Nations children were denied equal access to support, including medical equipment and school supplies. In addition to the $23 billion in compensation, another $20 billion will be spent to reform the child welfare system. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In interviews, renowned director Martin Scorsese said his vision for the film Killers of the Flower Moon changed after he consulted with Osage Nation leaders and community members. Among other adjustments, he said he wanted better representation of the Osage culture and people. The film takes audiences into a dark and violent period in the Osage Nation's history. At a time when the Osage people should have been enjoying their rightful prosperity, they were confronting political racism and murderous conspiracies from the outside. The movie is a brutally graphic portrayal of the violence and heartache that transpired. Scorsese brought in Osage perspectives throughout the production. Today we'll hear from Osage voices about how this tragic history was handled on and off screen. We're also interested in your perspectives. Have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon? Do you plan to? Let us know by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also comment on our social media pages. Joining us now from Pahuska, Oklahoma, is Margot Gray. She is the executive director for the United Indian Nations of Oklahoma and a direct descendant of Henry Roan, and appears as a character in the film Killers of the Flower Moon. She is Osage. Hello, Margot. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you, Sean. Joining us from Lawrence, Kansas, is Dr. Robert Warrior. He is the Hall Distinguished Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas. He is Osage as well. Robert, thank you for joining us. Welcome back to NAC. Um, thanks, son. And speaking with us from Osage County in Oklahoma is Tara Damron. She is the Program Director at the White Hair Memorial, and she is also Osage. Hello, Tara. Welcome to you, too. Thank you, Sean. 
We have so much to talk about today. This movie is getting so much buzz, Killers of the Flower Moon. And Margo, let's go ahead and begin with your great-grandfather, who is featured in the movie. What did you think of his portrayal in Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, um, you know, this has been our family history forever, so we've, you know, we've known about um, when I was 13, I found out about um, the the murder of my great-grandfather. So from then on, I have done so much research, and I thought the portrayal was uh, difficult as it was because, um, you know, it it says that he's melancholy. And recently on Facebook, I posted, um, and kind of a segue from your previous uh, opening is that um, at a very young age, he lost his mother. Um, he was only like 18 months old, and uh, the connection between a mother and a son in our in our community is very strong. And then at a very young age, um, he was uh, in a traditional uh, married to um, Molly Burke, Molly Kyle at the time. And then right after that, he was sent off to um, Carlisle Indian School. And so when we talk about the trauma of being in a Indian school and what happens um, from torture to sexual abuse and all those things. I'm sure he experienced that there because when he came back, he was a different person. They got like an Osage divorce and he later married my great grandmother, Addie, who was a descendant of Watanka. And then they had two children. After that, she died at a very young age and uh, like she was like 19 or 20. And then after that, um, he remarried again and had two more children and then went through a tumultuous uh, relationship there. And that's what you're seeing depicted. And then there was the alcoholism and um, depression. But you have to look at his life. So I think that um, what it shows is then you have the guardianship. Um, you know, he has ac- he can't even access his money without mm-hmm. going through a guardian. And that that systematic that the Bureau of Indian Affairs or Department of Interior instilled in that, that process was it's, you know, a man wants to be a man and you can't even access your money. You got to go ask for it. So you just collectively add all that together. You could see how his portrayal, there was a lot of problems with that. So, but I think it was as accurate as it was. In fact, his death, his murder was a little bit more graphic than what was displayed on the screen and um uh, but i thought that um it was pretty much as as close as they could get it and i'm glad that his voice was part of the the movie um that was portrayed in the movie okay thank you margo let's hear now from osage nation principal chief jeffrey standing bear he was instrumental in making sure the producers regarded the osage nation accurately and sensitively he told me about his worries when he first heard the best-selling book would be made into a movie we were immediately on alert saying well here we go somebody's going to be telling us story about indians getting killed and some fbi would come in here and save the day so we're we're all concerned then then it started like they're really going to make this movie. And this is before Apple got involved or Martin Scorsese. We started telling this the movie people, and there was quite a few involved on their end, that they got to film here. We hear they were going to film in other states that offered financial incentives. 
But if they go to the other states, well, we're going to, going to show up. And I told them, I told these people, and I said, you know, we're really serious about this. If you're going to film somewhere else, all those big Osages that are praying for you, well, you're going to see them at wherever you're filming. I'm going to get hotel rooms for everybody. And then we're all going to be there saying, uh, Killer of the Flower Moon 2. You know, and uh, we got some like 350-pound Osage guys, you know, and I just told them that. And then then other cooler heads said, uh, well, we're, what we're saying is we got to negotiate this. Well, they didn't want to talk about it too much. So all the way through into about 2019, we were just watching. And then all of a sudden, this, I appointed this one Osage to be a, a call him ambassador to that world of movie making, all that, because we don't understand it. He knows that world. He said, Mark Scorsese is going to make this film. And I said, oh, tell me more. Well, and then he calls back like, a couple of days later. So he's going to be here like 24 hours. And he shows up, and we, we welcome him. And we sat down, and first thing he says, we just want to let you know we're going to film here. And once he said that, we said, okay, we're, we're going to all of our language people. We want our language people to be up front. I said, we also have our people to do uh, traditional clothes. And he, he absorbed it. And he said, yes, 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 yes. And he had with him his producers and people. So, so they've already done their homework. And so they said, we're going to do that. And then next time I met with him, I said, you know, we really like your movies, but we're concerned that we're all going to be just dead bodies laying around, you know, like good fellows or something. And he goes, oh, I know how to make cultural movies. He said, we know how to do this. Then he'll tell you, he changed from, uh, after talking to our community, he, he went to a gray horse, talked to, to those folks, and he really heard their personal stories. And it moved him, he tells people, source says he. It moved him, and then uh, him and Leonardo DiCaprio kept saying, let's let's not make Leonardo DiCaprio Tom White, the FBI agent. Let's find out where the heart of the story is. And, and DiCaprio asked that, and Tor says, he says, I told Leo it's in the relationship between Molly and Ernest. So I said, this is complicated. How are you going to do this? He goes, oh, it's going to be told at two levels the level of trust and betrayal between a man and a woman, Ernest, Molly, and that relationship, and the trust and betrayal on another layer of the Osage or the outside world, the trust there and the betrayal of that trust. And that was how he approached this movie. That was Chief Standing Bear speaking with me yesterday. He says he believes the producers delivered on their promise to properly reflect the Osage perspective. And Margo, I want to ask you if you agree with, with Chief Standing Bear in that the producers did deliver on that promise to act, accurately portray Osage perspectives in culture and history. Because not only are you Osage yourself and uh, your great-grandfather, Henry Roan, uh, his his character, uh, his story is featured heavily in the film, but you're also one of the actors in the movie as well. You have a role. So what's your thought? Um, I have to completely agree with uh, Chief Standing Bear. Um, I was there working as a consultant for Chief when all of this was going on. So I know that is exactly what happened. And then when we got on um, in pre-production, 
there was a lot of um, conversation about um, the backstories, how much more information that they could pull from the descendants and from community elders. And so they brought that. And then they, they worked hand-in-hand with all of our artisans. Um, and then they even, like, did a call out for um, some of the um, historical clothing that we all have that has been passed down to us. In fact, in the movie, I wore um, it's um, a Spanish shawl that, is, that was given to my grandma Grace by, Henry, by my great-grandfather. So a lot of the, uh, many of the, the articles that you see in the, uh, the, uh, the dress and everything that had come, comes from a lot of the families and some of it was recreated. And so even the stories of what I was telling uh, Leonardo DiCaprio about my grandfather, what I was told by my mother and my grandmother, um, Nettie Lettrell, was, um, it was put into the script. So it was, it made a difference by them talking. And I'm telling you, they were such great listeners and, and I think that's what made many parts of the movie that were more Osage. So um, I have to agree with Chief. Well, this is just a, a really, really exciting time right now uh, in the Native American film industry. This movie is just getting so much buzz, so much attention. We're hearing a lot of talk about it being a potential Academy Award winner both in terms of uh, acting performances as well as the overall story. So if you haven't seen it yet, or if you're thinking about seeing the film, or if you've already seen it, give us a call. Let us know what you thought. 1-800-99-NATIVE. So many Native cultures have traditions aimed at keeping children safe or keeping them in line. And very often those traditions have a creepy story to drive them home. It's coming up on Halloween, so the time is right to hear about some spooky Native traditions. That's on the next Native America Calling. My precious relatives, protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian healthcare provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with members of the Osage Nation about the new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, and how it depicted the period known as the Reign of Terror. If you've seen the film and would like to offer your thoughts, then you can call us at 1-800-996-2848. If you have a comment about why you want to or don't want to see it, please weigh in. Our number is 1-800-99-NATIVE. The film Killers of the Flower Moon is now in theaters and is soon to be released on Apple TV. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, Margot, tell us more about the character who you play in Killers of the Flower Moon. She is a close, close relative of the the protagonist, uh, Molly Burkhart. Yes, um... 
when the movie, when they were first announcing the actresses that were going to be portraying, I reached out through them to social media and told them who I was. And we end up having, of course, this is during COVID, we end up having Zoom meetings. And then when they were finally here in Pahuska, um, we got to get together, have dinner, and they just wanted to learn more about Osage, Osage women, uh, women of that time. And um, and then later, um, as the movie started progressing and, and it came out that I was actually, I had read a couple of times and then I was cast as Grace Bickhart, who is the older half-sister to these four Kyle sisters. Uh, we had the same father. So I was um, very honored because I know the family, the Big Heart family, and um, did my best to portray that uh, character as well. And so in many of the scenes, um, I am sitting right next to Lily or uh, in between her and um, Ernest, which is Leo, in many of the scenes. and got to see how the movie played out. I was on set. I think about 27 days. And so um, um, I know that in getting to know Leo and getting to talk to him, that it was um, so important for them to get this right. And even just the little bitty nuances of, of how we are culturally. And you see that throughout the film. So I was just very honored to be um, a part of that uh of the movie itself, but also um, I think I talked about having the shawl, but they are wearing my grandmother's shawl, but also the other part was they wanted to, we did some recreations of, I did some chokers for the men's scenes that came out of the um, art of the Osage that we recreated. And I know many other people in our community, which really generated more revenue by hiring Osages but also our artisans. And I, I think that was such a, a great um, opportunity because I know many of my family worked in front of the camera and behind the camera as well. Let's hear another Osage perspective. Christopher Cote is an Osage language teacher, and he was a consultant on the film. In a recorded interview with him, he talks about his introduction to the story of the Reign of Terror and his view that the movie could have focused more on the main Osage character. The Rain of Terror is something that we did talk about growing up. I knew about it when I was a small child. There are our own uh, personal traumas that come from that time. Uh, my grandmother spoke about, she spoke about her mother and her father. She talked about her grandfather and how his last words were, don't eat or drink anything in this place. And then he died. And it was very mysterious because before that, he was a healthy man. There was no real reason to his, uh, to his death. And so we, we, talk, we, we talked about it, but we, we didn't, it wasn't in the Oklahoma history uh, curriculum. And Chris, I've heard you say that you, know, you, you wish that they had made the film more from the Osage perspective, told more of Molly's story. And, and, and how do you think they could have done that? How could that movie have been improved to incorporate those elements? They could have done less screen time of the actual perpetrators that took advantage of a very real person. They could have told this story 
from Molly. They could have followed her day-to-day life. They said that this is a story of betrayal. Well, right, a story of betrayal. Because that's that's what I've heard is she she didn't believe the things she had heard right up until it was just like he's in court and they're convicting him because there's just so much evidence that he did this and he was involved. Show that. Show that shock. Show that concern. But instead, really, we follow this guy committing crimes all the way through the movie. You know, we had an opportunity here to really talk about this history and show that perspective. You know, even with that said, I still think this is a film, like if you can manage to watch it, you should watch it. Because it's, it's not one of those that leaves you feeling good in the end. It's, it's really hard film to watch. Well, Chris, we've talked about uh, some of the shortcomings of the film. What can you say about the strengths? What, what elements did you really like about it? I really love the Osage presence. When you watch it and you see the Osage people in there, the identity of the people is in that film. And that is because Scorsese really worked with the tribe. When it comes to consulting with people, if you're going to represent them, I hope that this is a new standard and that we can surpass this when it comes to representation. Hearing the language throughout it, seeing our clothes of my people, and then, you know, in the little glimpses where you do see our customs. There's two naming scenes. There's, well, there's a handful of funerals, but even in that, when it comes to passing on to this life and going into the next, where many, she sees, she sees her old people and they greet you. That was one of those scenes that really touched me because, you know, that's something that we talk about. So there are Osage things in this film, you know, that are worth observing. And I think that's some of the strongest things. And I think uh, Lily Gladstone, uh, phenomenal performance. Like, she had such a strong performance. It would just be worth it just to watch Lily Gladstone. Anything else you'd like to share or add about the film? You know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about an elder a lot and I've been thinking a lot about his words lately and he was alive before my time so I guess the word is ancestor but I'm not a direct descendant of him they recorded him on a radio talk show back in the 30s and they wanted him to talk about the prosperity of Osage people and so in the recording he says and that just means there are two paths. One of them is good, and the other one is horrible. If you want to follow the one that is good, it's going to benefit you. That's what they said. He was referring to his old people. And so when I think about that, and I think about those words, you know, and the teachings that are given to us, you know, be kind to everybody. Take care of everybody. That's what that word means. Take care of everybody. Be kind to everybody. You know, if we learn to do that, you know, 
these things that happened a hundred years ago, they wouldn't they wouldn't happen again because we would we would take care of one another. We would care about one another. And that would be that would be real love. That was Chris Cote, an Osage language consultant who worked on the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, sharing his perspectives on the film and one of the perspectives that Chris shared is that he thought uh, they could have done a better job of presenting the Osage perspective, specifically from Molly Burkhart. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that maybe could have been changed or improved about the film. And to do that, let's bring in now Dr. Robert Warrior, who is a professor of American literature and culture at the University of Kansas. He is Osage, of course. And Robert, again, thank you for joining us. And I, I want to reference a piece that you wrote recently for New Lines magazine. And in that piece, you said that the film blames corrupt individuals rather than failed federal Indian policy. And how could that distinction be presented more clearly in the film? And if so, why do you think it's important that the public understands that distinction? Yeah, thanks for the question. Thanks for having me on, and it's uh, great to be part of uh, this conversation. So, you know, I think that that that, that point about about the role of federal policy within this story is it was to me missing in in the film. And as I thought about it on the way, I, I saw the film in in uh, July at a community screening, and I thought about it on the drive back to Lawrence that night, thinking about what 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 about it was unsatis unsatis not satisfying to me as a as a movie watcher, you know. And I think that that's what I came upon because it seems like to me this is in fact so much a part of this story. It's the it's the uh, unseen presence uh, throughout you know throughout. Uh, state history from really from 1804 on and uh, being able to make some sort of sense of that in the role that the federal government plays uh, within not just not just uh, standing aside while uh, corrupt and greedy people take took advantage of our you know of our ancestors from that period and continue to do so today in certain ways that that being able to see that it was really these these policies and the bureaucracy that enabled all of that. And I, I didn't see that in the film. And I, to me, that also would have helped to make more sense of that relationship with Molly that Chris talked about in the interview you did with him, of, of, the, of the really the fundamental question at the heart of the film, which is, why did Molly stay with this guy who's, who's murdering her, you know, who's slowly poisoning her? She's diabetic and he's poisoning her insulin and uh, um, and it's only at the very end that, that as Chris said that we get her her willingness to really confront that um, and and explaining that just by saying that she was really uh, desperately in love with him it it uh, really raised the question for me about about uh, for me that, that relationship didn't work uh, because of that and you know that that's just me, and for other people it works just fine. But it really did. It, it really pointed me towards being able to think about that larger, that larger network that that the people in the film, our ancestors who were affected, what they were confronting. They weren't confronting the evil of William Hale, just his evil alone. But his evil was in fact kept in place and aided and abetted uh, by you know by the. Um, by the uh, by the 
by policy, by bureaucracy. And the, and the last thing I think, too, that, that was missing for me in this regard that I just found really odd, and I saw it again. I took my I took my uh, two of my kids to see the film on uh, Sunday, and was really struck uh, again, but even in a, in a bigger way by I found it really odd how all of the how all of the the white characters in Fairfax seemed to know that Bill Hale was up to all of this, and that they were highly aware of his schemes, and that everybody seemed to know, and yet. So many of the Osages, especially the Osage leadership, was portrayed in the film as being kind of clueless about about maintaining him as a as a friend and not seeing through what was really his hatred um, uh, of us as Osages, and I, I, that just seemed that that just didn't work for me to say that that was in fact the case, and uh, uh, so I think that was part of what I was trying to really point at, and I think that this. Has been going on since the 1920s in the telling of the story. You know, the press gets interested in this spectacular uh, murder plot against these Osage people that comes down to prosecuting this one person when, in fact, it's an entire system uh, that that needs to be really indicted in the process. So many, so many nuanced elements of this film, and and I, it, there's that balance between you know the story, the romance of it, just the intrigue, and then of course, the the history there, the political history, the, the cultural history, just really a lot to take in. And let's go ahead and take our first caller of the day now, Cassie, who is listening online in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, Cassie. Have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon yet? Yes, I actually saw it last night. What'd you think? I I really really like the film. Um, I have read the book a couple of times. I don't know if that's a good thing, you know, to read the book first and then to watch the movie. It should probably just the reverse. But um, I, you know, I understand that uh, to make a film profitable, you have to bring an element into it, and the mm-hmm. element was. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and the romance with Molly. I did not get that impression in the book itself. I know he cared about her, but I know he also knew what it was, what his uncle was up to and the purpose of his marriage to Molly. So uh, I, I was a little disappointed about the why they emphasized that relationship more because I felt it was more important that the story about the Osage people and what they went through. And, you know, I was hoping that would be covered more. But I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. And I love Lily Gladstone. She's (laughs) wonderful. And I hope, you know, I hope she does receive a nomination for Best Actress because she was wonderful. And it would be such a wonderful thing for a Native American woman to work to earn uh, Best Actress. Well, Cassie, that's a great take, and uh, I would agree with you. I, I read the book and I saw the film as well, and uh, that romance between Molly and Ernest, that's not part of the book. That's certainly something that was very much romanticized for the big screen, and uh, 
interesting perspective, but 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 a really really good take. And uh, we're going to take another short break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more with Robert. We're also going to talk with Tara Dameron as well and get her perspectives. We are talking with folks from the Osage Nation today, and we are getting their feedback. We're getting their insights. We're going to the source of those folks who have lived there in Osage County, and uh, they have relatives, they have family, they have heritage there. This film hits very close to their community. It's their story, and we're getting their story from them. Anybody else with a question, or if you've seen the movie yet, and uh, you have any thoughts to share, our phone lines are open now. We're taking calls, 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we're waiting for your call next. Uh, anybody from Oklahoma or perhaps the Osage Nation specifically, if you're listening, we'd like to get your take as well, too. What did you think of the relationship between Ernest and Molly and how it was portrayed on screen? Or what did you think of some of the historical and cultural elements that were displayed or some of these big stars and how much screen time they got? Let us know. one 800 99 Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Are you a welder? For over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and there is still time to get a phone call into the studio. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to share your thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages like Facebook or Instagram. And we've got Dr. Robert Warrior on the line right now. He is Osage, and he's a professor at the University of Kansas, uh, professor of American literature and culture. And Robert, I want to get your take on another interesting um, part of the film. There is a reference to the Tulsa Race Massacre in Killers of the Flower Moon. And what did you think of that? How, how appropriate did you think that message was as part of the overarching theme? I think it was great that, that the, that the um, Greenwood Massacre was in, included in the film. You know, I think it's an incredibly important connection to be able to make from that time to be able to see how both of these, both of these really awful, terrible events from the 1920s were uh, really dovetail with each other, and they're right next to each other. I mean, the, the distance between, you know, the Greenwood part of Tulsa and uh, Osage Reservation is one miles, you know, at most, and to Pahuska and to, you know, Hamdi, it's, it's uh, you know, just not that much further. So being able to see those connections, I think one thing that often people don't, also see is a connection to a lot of the a lot of the um, successful African-American business people in Greenwood were, were Afro-Native people. Uh, not all of them. I'm not saying that uh, that they were only Afro-Native, but some of them were, and that had 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 been able to um, uh, um, succeed financially by being a part of both of those ways of of um, uh, of, of Doing doing their business and having both of those sorts of uh, perspectives, and um, so I think it's I think it's really really important. There could have been I think a lot more you know a lot more um, African American presence in the film. Uh, you know there were there there were uh, African American people 
uh, on, on the ocean uh, in larger numbers, I think, and you see in the film. I mean, I think of, of um, I know that my uh, great grandmother, uh, maybe, uh, maybe Warrior Bolton, you know, had a had an African American uh, domestic worker in her house in Gray Horse in 1920 around this time, uh, and then a and then a white cook in their house. So, um, and, and she was not alone in, in that. So there could have been more of that presence, but I'm really glad that the part that got included was included. Thanks, Robert. Let's bring Tara Dameron into our conversation now. And she is in Osage County, Oklahoma, program director at the White Hair Memorial. Tara, thank you again for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. And let's talk a, a little bit about Osage leadership during the reign of terror. And can you tell us more about the actions that were taken by the community during that time when those murders were occurring? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, so I'll back up a little bit. The, the 1906 Allotment Act, which is the Osage Allotment Act, um, it's, it's different um, than a, a lot of the other uh, allotments that apply to other tribes. Um, two key things happened. One of them is the securing of the mineral rights um, held in common by all members of the Osage tribe, right? Um, and the other thing that happened was that when the service land was allotted, there were three rounds of allotment uh, for um, each each Osage. There were 2,229 original allottees. They each received one head right, which is a share in the mineral estate, and then um, approximately 655 or so acres. So there was no surplus land in Osage County. Um, so, you know, the ideas of land runs that happened in other parts of Oklahoma, that, that didn't happen here. Um, so the other thing that the 1906 Allotment Act does is that it changes our tribal government once again. And so we are, um, have a tribal council, uh, that's based off of, um, the original, that Allotment Act, the allottees, and it also ties, you know, a head right to a voting right. Um, so it's an eight member tribal council, principal chief, assistant chief, and it's two year term. So that sort of sets up how our, our government is, is, is being run. Um, the other thing that happens is 1896, 1897, oil is discovered on the Osage Reservation. This was pre-1906 Allotment Act. Um, so we knew about the oil that was here. Um, and our leaders at that time, you know, they're the ones that guided us down here from Kansas. And we were, um, we sold our reservation up there and we purchased our reservation lands down here. Um, what is the, the Osage Reservation? And we purchased it from the Cherokee Nation in trust. And so, therefore, we held, we held the title to the land. So that was one of the reasons that the General Allotment Act didn't um, apply to us because we, we um, owned our land. Um, so what, what, what that means is that we had leadership that understood um, that there needed to be change and that we had to um, provide a way for our people. So, you know, what, what they did in, in making the move and the purchase to our final reservation was they said, okay, this is going to be our final home, you know, and so we're going we're gonna to resettle here and this is, this is going to be our home. And so the securing of the mineral estate um, for all of us was yet another example of tribal leadership and thinking about the future um, and, the, and the present at that time for, for future Osages, right? Because that was going to provide um, a, a financial foundation because there's 
so much cultural change happening, not only to the Osages, but, but so many tribes, you know, right, with sporting pools, um, federal Indian policy, to echo again Dr. Warrior's um, statements and sentiments, um, plays a tremendous role in American Indian lives then and now. Um, you know, we, we still very much, you know, have, have to deal with that. But specific to the, the 20s and, and, you know, what, what we've been dubbed as the, as the reign of terror, um, you know, leadership understood that there was um, a, a problem and there was so much corruption at the, the local level, the county levels, the state levels, and the fact that no one could be trusted um, not law enforcement, not undertakers, you know, it goes back to this whole system of corruption in place that is promulgated um, and allowed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs when we're talking about um, a breach of trust responsibility, right? Um, and so really efforts that, you know, the Tribal Council made, and it was under Nikawashi Tonka, and he's, he's not mentioned, uh, no, but he was the, the chief from... 1922 to 1924, and he, he passed away during that time frame. He, he passes away in 1923. Um, but it was under his administration with Assistant Chief Paul Red Eagle when they went to D.C. and, you know, went to the DOJ and, and said, look, you, you guys really have to come investigate these murders because they're not going to stop and they're continue to kill us, and you all have a, a responsibility because we are federal restricted Indians. Right. So this mm-hmm. this is your responsibility to come in and 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 really look into this. So that's one part that really comes across uh, really loud and clear in the film is just the depth of the conspiracy and just how overwhelming that must have been for the Osage people during that time. Just absolutely nowhere to turn. I mean, they could not trust anybody. Every, the courts, law enforcement, the guardians, attorneys, every everybody was aligned against them, apparently. And I have to ask here, because as, as the film winds down, uh, there are a couple of convictions, and then, you know, you're just kind of left to hanging. Okay, well, then what happens next? And when did those murders finally stop? Was it with those convictions and also the scheming of all these other people that were trying to take head rights and embezzle and things like that? When did the Reign of Terror finally end? Um, it, it doesn't end with Hale, right? It, it doesn't end with, with those convictions. Um, now, now what does end is obviously what, what Hale's responsible for, and he was responsible for a number of deaths, right? But Hale, um, Ernest Burkhart, um, all of these individuals, Kelsey Morrison, uh, John Ramsey, I mean, none of these people actually served, um, you know, full full life sentences. You know, Kelsey Morrison actually comes back to Fairfax and he's, you know, killed on the on the streets of Fairfax. Um, you know, Hale later gets, um, you know, paroled and and he lives, you know, on Arizona to be, you know, 80 years old or something. Um, Ernest and Byron Burkhart, you know, are still here in Osage County. Um, you know, that, that's part of the story of where I work, which is uh, the Lily, um, the White Hair Memorial, Lily Morell Burkhardt. You know, she um, she was another full-blood Osage lady, um, and she, she was married to Byron Burkhardt. But the second time that Ernest is convicted, right, is, is he, he gets out of prison. He comes back here to Osage County. He actually robs Mrs. Burkhardt, um, and he's sent back to um, the federal penitentiary in Atlanta because he's a restricted Indian. And she's on. This is on restricted land. And so, 
you know, the the scheming and the pilfering of Osage Estate um, continued, you know, and, you know, I, I wish that it ended with Hale, but it wasn't. Hale was one person a part of this tremendous system of merchants, lawyers, guardians, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, all okay. working, you know, against us. Right. Tara, I also couldn't help but wonder while both reading the book and, and watching the film and were Osage people themselves, were they ever implicated in any of the murders? I'm just curious. I have never uh, found any records or documentation um, to to speak to that. Um, so um, not, that, okay. not that I'm aware of. Sure, because I, I just, you know, like when, um, well, like the legal defense of, of Hale and Ernest, as shrewd as those attorneys were, it seems like something they would have maybe tried to do and say, hey, well, you know, Molly was complicit or something like that. Seems like something that, that, that they would try and maybe possibly attempt to do. But uh, Tara, overall, what do you want audience members to understand about the story of the Reign of Terror? And, and how do you think this film is going to be most effective at, at delivering that message? Well, number one, it's an important story that, that needs to be told, right? Um, but I think what, what the world needs to understand is that this is a movie, and it, it, it's a movie, right? And so it, it's not a documentary. Um, and that there, um, you know, we as Osage people and our ancestors and different ones who, you know, have passed on those stories who, or who lived through it um, are going to have a different perspective of it, you know? And... Um, I think that they that people need to understand that there it was more than just one family, right, and more than just those individuals um, that that are depicted from that, and that we still deal with the effects of that to this day, um, because 26% of our, our Osage head rights are in are in non-Indian non-Osage hands, right, and so economically speaking, you know, and that's something that every quarter, you know, that's millions of dollars that have left um, Osage hands. So, you know, there's there's more to this story, right, than, than, and it doesn't just end, you know, so. Right, right. Robert, I want to get your perspectives as, as well, because, um, you know, there's no statute of limitations on, on murder. And uh, do you think there's any possibility that after this film that maybe some cold cases could be reexamined? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, that's, I think, always in my mind did such an important part of keeping the story alive. It was the part of uh, David Grant's book, which is, is so admirable in so many ways. He's such a wonderful writer in so many ways. But that when I picked it up, I thought it would include a lot more of the cold cases in it, the unsolved cases, you know, and, and yet there's a chapter towards the end when you have uh, Mary Jo Webb and, and Marvin Stepson passing along these kind of big boxes of material to him without really delving into what's in those boxes. And that was disappointing to me as a reader and also as a scholar. It just seemed like to me that that's always in my mind been where where there's a lot of work to be done and, and really hard work too, because, you know, Molly and Ernest are not the only, are not the only marriage where they're, where, that ended up um, like this one, where there's somebody married to an Osage where, you know, something terrible happens on purpose uh, to the Osage person in the marriage. And uh, and some descendants of, of all those people are still around. It makes it hard, I think, and sometimes to, to, to figure out and talk about 
but I do think that those cold cases, yeah, are there. And I, you know, it's it. On, on one hand, Sean, I guess I would say, absolutely, somebody could come along and, and try to solve some of those cases. On the other side of that, I also think that Tara's exactly right. This is a film. Um, I don't think that should keep us from, you know, really questioning what the film says and how it says it. But I also think that there are other ways of keeping a story alive. And one of the things about Grey Horse as a community is it has a history that is bigger and and more profound than, you know, one decade in which there are these terrible, awful, awful tragic murders. You know, there's an entire history there. It's an entire history of our reservation with the other communities of the Husk and Harmony that are profound in and of themselves and that that coming up with creative and, and, and you know, wonderful ways to to think about, about those stories of resistance, resilience, mm-hmm. and persistence are, are really, really important. And I just got to say, I'm really glad that Tara is one of the people who's, who's um, you know, stewarding the, a, a lot of this because I think she's super smart. She's very much committed to our community and, and has learned so much over the years. And really, you know, I, I, I really just want to commend her on her work. Absolutely. Margot, I want to go back to you for the last word. We have about a minute before we have to wrap up the show. And as you've shared, this this reign of terror is just one part uh, of your people's history. And uh, it's not the defining moment. There's so much more vibrancy. There's so many more positive elements of your history. But do you have any worry that uh, this film going forward could now kind of paint the Osage Nation as the tribe that endured the reign of terror at the expense of some of the other wonderful and proud moments in your tribal history? Yeah, you know, um, I just I do have to comment on uh, both of my other um, Osage um, people is that who are, spoke today. One of the things was when we talk about federal Indian law and where our trustee was not in, they were just as much in it in that day and time as they are today. Um, um, if anything, the takeaway from this is that we can change federal Indian policy because we have so much overreach on our mineral state today that mm-hmm. our production is down. We we want to be able to um, produce our own asset, our oil and gas on our own terms. And we have been, um, the federal government, Department of Interior, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, we still have those constraints today. So um, if you even go back into the 1906, which Tara uh, was discussing, you All know, right. the, the other Margo, side is... I'm so sorry, Margo. We're, we're out of time. We're going to have to wrap up this show, but maybe we could have you folks come back and continue this discussion because there's so much to talk about. At any rate, folks, please join us again tomorrow. We're going to have another great show for you lined up. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. 
The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the ninth annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.